memorized yet, so um, we are um, kind of moving from um, signs or causes of backsliding now to remedies and uh, the things that will keep us close to the Lord, close to one another. So tonight I'm going to be looking at one of the the, the remedies for backsliding, sort of preventative um, remedies. It's uh, a study on the Lord's Supper. So tonight it's sort of a, my goal is to not completely change your mind about things. I hope that you actually do believe a lot of the right things about the Lord's Supper, but maybe um, expand your horizons a little, fill in the biblical picture, and uh, apply um, the truth. Because I'm convinced that uh, the Lord's Supper and our understanding of it probably has a long way to go, and uh, you need to be not just doing the Lord's Supper as we do in our church, but instructed in actually what you are doing, what is happening, why, and all of these things, and maybe enrich your encounter with uh, the Lord a bit more. So that's the goal for tonight, and we pray that God will uh, help us in that endeavor. So uh, the passage I'm going to read from is Mark chapter 14. We will eventually get here, um, verse 22 to 25, Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Well, let us pray and ask God to bless his word preached. Our Father, we ask now that you will clarify our understanding of divine truths, truths that we uh, perhaps no, and truths that perhaps we sometimes take for granted. And if we are lacking in our understanding, please fill it in, O Lord, with your word and the truth of your word. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the Lord's Supper is... Uh, Maybe uh, the doctrine that I would say unifies the body of Christ, unlike uh, really any um, doctrine, any act that God's people uh, engage in. And the reason I say that is because of everything that I hope will follow will fill that in. And I want you to just keep that in mind at the beginning of the sermon uh, that the intention of the Lord's Supper is to provide a picture of the vast, vast, vast unity of God's people in the most important act that they can do together at the same time. Baptism unifies us, of course, but it is uh, often something that takes place to an individual in a local uh, church, but the Lord's Supper is something that brings us in a very tangible way together. Now, many will point out historically, the Lord's Supper has been an occasion of division based upon different understanding of what is taking place. 
Let me just say, it is possible for someone to have a wrong understanding of the Lord's Supper, but nevertheless receive a benefit they don't actually believe they're receiving. So if the Lord's Supper does convey to us God's grace and power, and yet someone actually just believes it is a memorial where they're to remember something, they may actually still be fed by Christ, though they do not believe they're being fed by Christ. Now, I do think it's important to understand what is happening in the Lord's Supper, but like some who don't understand the doctrine of justification by faith and Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, you are still a recipient of the imputed righteousness of Christ, even though you may not believe it or know it. And that's what God's grace is meant to do, even where we are ignorant, even where we don't know, even when we disagree with something, the truth will still affect us. And I want us to not simply be those who say, well, that's fine, then I can believe all sorts of error. It's still going to bless me. I don't think it quite works like that. I'm simply saying that I believe God overcomes our ignorance at times, but doesn't ask us to remain ignorant. So what is the Lord's Supper? Some have described the Lord's Supper as an earthly encounter with the heavenly Christ. And I would say to you that it is probably better termed a heavenly encounter with the heavenly Christ. And why do I say that? Because all true worship takes place in heaven. And if you understand that about worship, it will change your concept of worship and what you believe worship to be. Now, how do we know that? Well, there are a number of places you could go to Revelation chapter 4 or 5 or other places. But in Hebrews chapter 12, The author of Hebrews is writing to his hearers and he says in verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched. In other words, you've not come to what is earthly, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You've not come to that place. As Christians in the New Covenant, where have you come? Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, are we talking about literal Mount Zion? Of course not. We're talking about heavenly Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. If you weren't convinced, the author says, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where you've come. The heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where have you come? You have actually come to where God is, where Christ is, where the angels are, where all of the departed saints are. You have come to that place. Now tell me, is that place on earth or is that place in heaven? And the answer is given to us. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. So the first point to have in your minds when it comes to worship and the Lord's Supper 
is that it is a meal that takes place in no other place than heaven. It is not an earthly meal. To the degree that it is an earthly meal, you will have an earthly benefit. To the degree that it is a heavenly meal, you will have a heavenly benefit. Now, how important is the Lord's Supper to our Christianity? Stephen Charnock actually has a delightful quote. He says, There is in this action, speaking of taking the Lord's Supper, more communion with God than in any other religious act. We have not so near a communion with a person either by petitioning for something we want or returning him thanks for a favor received as we have by sitting with him at his table. With every single just saint, with every angel, and with Christ himself partaking of the same bread and the same cup. That is why this is the greatest religious act you can do on earth. Christ is really presented to you, says Charnock, and faith really takes Him and closes with Him and lodges Christ in the soul so that Christ dwells in your heart by faith and makes Him an indweller. You are taking Christ into your soul so that He dwells there and the soul has the spiritual communion with Him in His life and His death and His resurrection. And it gives us life-giving power from on high. So we can debate the frequency of the Lord's Supper all we want and completely misunderstand what it is we're actually doing. And what is it that we're doing? Well, the biblical context will help us a little bit. You'll remember that Jesus will talk about the Lord's Supper in terms of the Passover. And so he has a Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover meal was a meal of fellowship and rejoicing. Here's the first point for you to maybe ponder and maybe for the elders to ponder and for me to ponder. And this is what makes the elders nervous. Uh, We haven't talked about this yet, Mark. It wasn't in the minutes. Uh, Well, uh, sin now, ask for forgiveness later. Is that how it goes? Well, I don't believe I'm sinning. So I'm not asking for forgiveness. But I would say this. We are probably a little too somber in our reception of the Lord's Supper than we need to be. That's the first point. Uh, Let me put this colloquially for some of you who maybe didn't get that. You need to lighten up a little. Uh, Some, I feel, get so involved in trying to make this intellectual jump into how much can I really believe what He did for me is a blessing for me that your brain is overworking. And you might actually be missing something by thinking about it the wrong way. Now, Jews in the Passover meal would remember uh, God's mercy to those houses that were marked with blood of the Paschal Lamb. Now, you have to remember, how would you think about having a firstborn in your house who was going to be destroyed by the destroying angel and yet because of the blood over the doorpost your child is saved what type of rejoicing would you have it has to be one of rejoicing that's absolutely essential 
but they also then, because of that, anticipated God's future deliverance of them out of Egypt. The, the Passover was not just something they remembered that the destroying angel passed over their house, but also that God was going to deliver them. And so they would have a meal of celebration. That is why Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He calls it that. And so what was the Passover? It was linked to the blood of the Lamb that protected the firstborn. So Jesus, speaking in Mark chapter 14, as we read earlier, He is going to drive home the necessity of suffering in this meal. So there's rejoicing, but there's also suffering. So Mark chapter 14, verse 22. This is my body. What He's really saying, if you were to do a sort of NIV, what is the meaning of this? You would say He's saying, this is my sacrificial body. It's not just His body, but His body as it is given for us. A sacrifice. In verse 24, this is My blood. This is My sacrificial blood. It's not just His body, not just His blood, but His body as sacrifice. His blood as sacrifice. And Joachim Jeremiah, one of the great New Testament scholars, said that we have a double simile of Jesus here. Jesus made the broken bread a simile of the fate of His body. When He breaks the bread, that is the breaking of His body. The blood of the grapes, a simile of His outpoured blood. So Jesus is actually the Paschal Lamb. Jesus uses this language with His disciples to show them that His death is a saving death, not just some unfortunate circumstance of an impending trial that's gone wrong. So when they have this meal with Him, and then all of the events unfold, they shouldn't have thought, oh dear, this is bad luck, but rather He is saying to them, this is what is about to happen to Me. I am about to be broken for you. I am about to have My blood poured out for you. And the accent is then not so much upon what the Jewish religious leaders or the Romans are doing to Jesus, but what Jesus is willingly undergoing for their sake. So that's a little bit of the Passover context. There is also the issue of remembrance. And this is where I think we make the most mistake in taking the Lord's Supper. In Luke chapter 22, uh, it records, when Jesus took the bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Now we have to understand this in its biblical context. What it means to remember and what the Word actually has in view here. And it may not actually be exclusively what Jesus had in mind in terms of remembering something that He did. In fact, the Word is actually more akin to a memorial. And what does that mean if it is a memorial? Do this memorial of Me. It means that in the Palestinian background in Christ's times, there were various uh, prayers that speak to God in terms of His relation to the Messiah. This is very interesting. And uh, when we look at the remembrance language, we have this idea in the background of prayers of that day that it was also God remembering the Messiah. 
Now just stay with me. It's not just us remembering what Christ did, but this memorial is God remembering what Christ did as well. It is not therefore simply an act that you engage in when we say, do this in remembrance of me. We are presenting a memorial and this memorial is also an act for God to remember. Now, why would that be important? Well, because Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What is the Lord's Supper? It's not just remembering something that's happened in the past. It is a proclamation of a living reality of a Savior who is in heaven. And when we proclaim the Gospel, it is a public proclamation. Now, this proclamation does what? It speaks of Christ's death as the beginning of salvation, but it also has in view the consummation of when He will return. And Jeremiah says this, it was really helpful to me, he says, as often as the death of the Lord is proclaimed at the Lord's Supper, and the Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, rises upward, God is reminded of the unfulfilled climax of the work of salvation until He comes. In other words, remember what Jesus says, I will not eat of this meal with you until the consummation. And so when we have the Lord's Supper, we are not just reminding ourselves of what Christ has done. We are, as it were, presenting before the Father, Jesus Christ, so that the Father knows that we are accepted for Christ's sake. Now this actually is something that has biblical precedent. And where would you find this idea of God remembering a promise that He has made? You can go all the way back to Genesis. The dual focus of remembering. If you look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 14-17, to 17, there the bow is a memorial. It reminds God What's more important when it comes to the rainbow? When we look at the rainbow, we see God's promise. But is that all that happens? No, God sees the rainbow and He remembers His promise. It has a dual focus. And so, in Exodus chapter 12, the blood of the covenant is presented, what? To God by the Israelites. When the blood is over the door, who is looking at it? The destroying angel reminded of what? Not to enter that house. When the Lord's Supper is presented here, God is reminded of Christ's death. It's, it's language that is obviously anthropomorphic. God doesn't need to remember in a very strict sense. He knows all things. But that's not how the Scriptures function. There are many times God's promises are offered in very visible, tangible things like circumcision, baptism, the rainbow, and the Lord's Supper. So when you are taking the Lord's Supper, you need to be reminded that God is being reminded, not just you. And that when God sees the broken body and the blood poured out of His Son whom He loves, He cannot deny to His Son or to you the promises that He has made. Just as He cannot deny the promise He has made concerning the rainbow. So the remembrance is a dual focus. 
you are not just remembering what Christ did for you, but you are presenting to God something for Him to fulfill according to His promise. Now then, there is also the matter of Christ's presence. This is where things got a little bit tricky during the Reformation. Even Calvin was not as perspicuous as he probably could have been, and part of the reason is we are dealing with a mystery, and you have some of the Scottish theologians in later years reading Calvin and saying, we don't really know what he's on about. Now, Calvin was clear, simple. He had beautiful prose. You can pick Calvin up and read him. You can read guys a hundred years later and go, what are they talking about? But when it came to the Lord's Supper, nobody quite knew what Calvin was talking about. I don't even know if Calvin knew what he was talking about. But there is some sympathy because we're dealing with quite a reality. Our Lord said to His disciples, this is My body which is given for you. And speaking of the wine, He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. So the bread and the wine are the body and blood of Christ. He says they are, but the question is, how are they? And that's where you have a few views on how they are. Merely symbolic? Or literally His body? A transubstantiation takes place and it's actually His body and blood. And that's why Luther, when he's first doing the Lord's Supper, he's shaking and pours the wine. He felt like he was dropping Christ's blood on the floor, the poor guy. How is it Christ's body and blood? The question is not, is it, but how is it? And that's where Paul helps us a little bit in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not our participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So we are participating in Christ's body and blood. The first point to notice is that it is plural. We are doing something that we break, that we bless. We are participating in Christ. And we are participating in His body and blood. Now that means we are participating in the benefits of His body and blood. But how do we do that? Well, the only coherent answer the only answer that will make sense of the reality that we really are participating in something that's real is that by faith the Holy Spirit takes these elements and seals them to our souls in such a way that we can say we're eating the body and blood of Christ. That the Holy Spirit so identifies with Christ and His work in our bodies and our souls that that bread and wine is the body and blood of Christ because of what the Spirit does to us in our reception of these things. And that is a mystery, but it is still nevertheless real. Matthew Poole, one of the great commentators, said that when Christ said, take, eat, He means no more than that true believers should by their hand take their body, by the hand of their body, take the bread, and with their mouths eat it, but at the same time by the hand and mouth of faith receive and apply all the benefits of His blessed death and passion to their souls. Everything that is contained in what happened at Christ's death is actually sealed to your soul as you take and eat. 
And the Holy Spirit seals this to you. Now when you read earlier Hebrews chapter 12, you'll notice that the author begins chapter 12 by saying, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So when you are taking the body and blood of Christ, by faith, you are believing that you are taking Christ to yourself, that the Holy Spirit is sealing all of those benefits to you, and that the Father is being presented with a memorial, a remembrance of Christ's work on your behalf. In other words, there is nothing more Trinitarian that you will do in a worship service than take the Lord's Supper. No other act actually excites the Trinity in your life than the Lord's Supper. You are actually receiving Christ by the Spirit as a memorial to the Father who has set the table before you. The Father gave you Christ. And we are then presenting Christ back to the Father. And this happens by the Spirit. That's a real problem for us to make the Trinity tangible and meaningful in our life. The Lord's Supper does that for you. The Lord's Supper brings home to you the triune God. Now what can we say by way of application? I don't know how many points, but I've got a few minutes it looks like. First is this. If you are a Christian and you do not want to backslide, which I think we would all admit we should probably have that desire we don't want to backslide. One of the things you need to make a priority in your life is not just corporate worship, but when you are engaging in corporate worship and especially at the Lord's table, to not only be reminded of what you are doing, but be reminded of what God has done and is doing and will do for you. That is to say, the Lord's Supper is not just a past remembrance, it is a present reality and it's a future hope. You are meant to think as you take the Lord's Supper, I am surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I am eating and drinking with every Christian on earth and every saint in heaven. And angels are with me. And Christ is there. And the Father is there. And the Spirit is there. If you were to think about the Lord's Supper like that, it might change the way you approach the Lord's table. But if you think about the Lord's Supper as coming and thinking about what Jesus did for you all those years ago, and you really meditate on it, and I'm not saying you don't appreciate it. You do. Your focus is so individualized that you're missing that there's a massive, massive myriads upon myriads of people surrounding you at that moment. And I'm trying to get you to think about the fact that when you take the Lord's Supper, you need to open your eyes, expand your horizon, and realize that the church is never more unified and one than when we are taking the Lord's Supper. You can get a Lutheran, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, an Anglican, yes, even an Anglican, Stephen. <laughs> he won't listen to this. And when you bring them to the Lord's table, they're all eating the same Christ and drinking the same blood. And whatever differences we may have, and they are differences, in a sense, they are all swallowed up 
in the fact that Christ is sustaining us by His Spirit, by His body, by His blood, in a way whereby the church is never more unified than when we are eating and drinking together. So people may criticize Protestants for their thousand denominations, but what they're forgetting is that actually the church is one and nothing cannot make it one when we eat and drink together. Second point, that as we present the bread and the wine, we are also presenting the fruit of our labor. But our labor is actually a gift from God. God gives us the grain. God gives us the grapes. This is all His creation. And yet, we take the grain, we take the grapes, and we present it back to God. And this is actually a summary of the Christian life. Everything that you present to God, He has first already given to you. Anything that you come with in your hands to God, He has already given to you. The Christian life is actually one of simply giving back to God what He has already given to us. And the Lord's Supper actually tangibly encapsulates that. That when we are presenting before God the bread and the wine, we are actually presenting back to God something He has already given to us. Namely, His Son. And so God, by His grace, transforms the bread and the wine into the body and blood of His Son. That is to say, you cannot give to God something that He has not already given to you. And so the Lord's Supper does what? It seals to you all of the benefits of Christ, but it reminds you of salvation is entirely and utterly of grace and cannot be but that. So that even if you give to God this memorial of this wine and this bread, you know that you did not create that wine and you did not create that bread, but God did. And when He transforms that wine and that bread, as He must for it to be of any use to you, it must be by His grace that He transforms that so that when you eat and drink, you are eating and drinking life and not judgment. And so coming back to the beginning, remember that quote from Charnock? I would like to know if the quote maybe means a little bit more now at the end than it did at the beginning. One of my favorite points of teaching is Psalm 8. Some of you have heard this many times. Our Lord, how glorious is your name in all the earth. Then you read the psalm and the same verse is at the end. And I think the last verse has a more pregnant meaning than the first verse, even though it's the same verse. So there is more or there is in this action more communion with God than any other religious act. We have not so near a communion with a person either by petitioning for something we want or returning him thanks for a favor received as we have by sitting with him at his table, partaking of the same bread and the same cup with every single saint who has ever lived and is now in glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the joy of the Lord's Supper. Help us not to think of it as a funeral, a mere remembrance of somebody who died, but as a fellowship meal whereby we can be excited to joy and happiness because Christ is for us and God is for us and the Spirit is for us. And so, as we eat and drink, we are eating and drinking 
salvation afresh into our souls. Help us, O Lord, so that we may believe this and enjoy Christ glorified. Amen.